Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 305 for February 19th, 2009. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got a lot of great stuff for you this episode. It's jam-packed. We're going to hear from Louis St. Louis and hear some exclusive tracks from an unheard demo of his Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel that has been happening in Atlanta. First ever reworking of an Andrew Lloyd Webber show, and it's quite interesting. He was also the original musical director on Grease for both the stage show and the movie, so he's got a lot of stories to tell. We've also got a southern gothic novel, one-man show. We've got Fresh Kills. We've got Fool for Love. And, of course, we've got Top of the Trades. We've got Marty Cooper with On the Positive Side. We're going to hear a song from our uh, showcase uh, contest winner, Joe Sherman, as well. So um, we're going to be going weekly with the open mic portion of our evening on March 1st, Sunday, March 1st at 8 p.m. Tasty Skank had to back out because, wouldn't you know it, they get a chance to pitch their TV show in Hollywood the next day, so I can't exactly fault them. But we are going ahead with the open mic. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're really making sure it's friendly for new theater composers as well as singers. It's a chance to kind of meet each other, and uh, hopefully it'll turn into a great thing. So come on down, share your music, share your voice, uh, however you want to do. Information is on the website at broadwaybullet.com. But, like I said, we got a jam-packed episode, so no time to delay. Let's jump into it. On the boards. Well, Tennessee Williams meets Greater Tuna in a new one-man show entitled Southern Gothic Novel. It has been getting fantastic reviews around as it runs Wednesday through March 25th. And we have got the writer, performer, creator, Frank Blocker, here to talk about the show and maybe do a brief (laughs) excerpt from from it for us. How you doing? I am doing well. How are you? All right. So I guess the first thing is Southern Gothic novel, one person thing. It's centered around some crimes, some abductions of women. And well, it, it it all started many years ago. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, working on writing a a novel just for the fun of it. It was more of a writing exercise. And uh, as I would create it, I I knew where the story was going. I had an outline. Always for good it. when you got a novel yes, being written. Always good. <laughs> and uh, I I would take each chapter and try to write in a different style, or I would go to friends and ask for suggestions. Not that they were going to change the story in any way, but sort of helping them help me formulate the story. And because I was doing it all on the web, everything was everything was geared to make you turn the page. It, there was a screen full of text, and the idea was that when you got to the bottom of that page, you wanted to turn the page. And 10 years later, as it morphed into a play, I find that that exercise alone was very good for uh, storytelling. I mean, it really does tend to keep you on the edge of your seat. You're expecting something to happen constantly. So, so that part translated pretty well. But it was never supposed to be a play. It's just that as I would 
read certain excerpts for people, they would say, you do those voices really well. Maybe you should just perform this. And then uh, years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to try it out, and I uh, took a big risk with a friend of mine, and uh, we uh, decided to start hacking into it and see if we could adapt it from what it was and, and turn it into a play. And uh, did a little trial in front of a, 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 a what do you call it when you do a, a, a test market? We, we, we did a test market audience of it's about 30 like a, people. It's called like a party where you're providing beer and cheese? Well, no, we didn't have <laughs> beer and cheese. <laughs> Although I offered to buy them liquor. I think that helped get people there. Um, but after we, after we did that, we only did the first two or three chapters. And, two or three, and, and we, we said, okay, are there any questions? And two or three people at the same time yelled, what happens? So I thought, well, that's a very good sign. And I entered it in the Fringe Festival uh, with a cocky little letter saying, darn it, we want the chance to prove ourselves. And they, they took us up on it. And since then, I've, I did it at that festival, did it in a few others around the country, and it worked on it. And then last year, put it in a festival again after it sort of had sat around. And I, I reworked it a little bit. And the festival director is my director now, uh, Cheryl King, in uh, she got behind the show and helped to move us forward. So, so what? What is the show about? It's the show is a novel story. in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> in about an hour, uh, the story is. Well, the idea of the story is there's a major incident going on, but our heroine is pretty oblivious to it because she's in love, and she's in love with the unattainable as she always is. And so we follow her trying to get her unattainable love while all hell is breaking loose around her, and she is pretty much oblivious to it all. Uh, girls have been started disappearing from this small town a few weeks ago, and nobody can figure out why, but it seems to have happened at the same time a few people arrived in town, particularly the black woman who owns a saloon moved in about the time that happened, so everybody is trying to blame it on her. Uh, and there's a few other new people in town, but they're not nearly as suspicious, of course. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, they, we, we just follow the town as it goes from being a sleepy little town to suddenly being the center of attention and being in a bit of an uproar and, and uh, watching Viola making sort of an idiot of herself throughout it, as we all do when we're madly in love. <laughs> <laughs> So. Well, do you want to maybe do an excerpt from the show here? Ah, uh, sure. Um, I, 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 it was. It's. It, this is always a, the, the part I would do is probably the same same thing that same portion that everybody seems to go for because uh, that's when everything starts happening at once. We suddenly get from, from introducing our characters into, into a little bit. We're we're a little past a little bit of the resolution. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not resolution. Boy, obviously I can't think of my words today. Uh, but we, we get into to where the story really gets going and you start meeting all of the characters. And uh, so, uh, and the play, of course, is divided up in chapters. So the excerpt you'll hear is from chapter four. All right. You ready to take a deep breath? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> chapter four, Being Have. From its early days as a port on the Tom Bigby River, Aberdeen, Mississippi has chosen to show its wealth through architecture. Built in 1850 and added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1978, the Monroe County Courthouse adorns the edge of town with its Greek revival. More of the town's history was being shaped at this moment in the chambers of Judge Robert Percy, where another civil war was raging. Pete Egley, 
Little Pete Egley was wanting Big Otis put under investigation for the recent disappearances. He was banking on suspicion, innuendo, and the relative inexperience of his opponent in this matter. Donna, Miss Hasler, is that what you like to be called now that you have a part-time job with the Mississippi State Bureau of Investigation? I'd prefer you didn't call me anything at all. You just go ahead, little Pete. I think I can keep up. Donna, please, I know we're just talking about looking into an indictment here, but please, behave. I'm sorry, Bob, Your Honor. Let's not blame this on the only black woman you know, Mr. Egley. Ms. Hasler, I would suggest that your relationship with Big Otis, the defendant, trumps the race card. Now, I congratulate you on your new career and all, but her next victim might hit a little closer to home. Or is that part of your plan? Would you like me to keep a tab on content, Mr. Egley, or is it going to be pay as you go? Whew. Lordy, we need to take a break. I'm sweating like a whore in line on Judgment Day. Sorry, Donna. We're going to have to come back after lunch and finish this. Exiting chambers, Donna saw a dark-haired man with steel-gray eyes standing alone across the hall, concerned. Her new boss was watching her and didn't want to be noticed back. A reporter followed Donna from the courthouse onto Commerce Street. Excuse me, excuse me, Miss Hasler. I'm Jeffrey Stone from the Jackson Gazette. If you could just tell me what you know about the missing girls. Perhaps you know them through your friend, Big Otis Cole, the bar owner, the black, well, the African-American. You mean the bitch who's gonna kick your ass? Well, look what we have here. An assistant with the MSBI and the woman most likely involved. Shut your mouth and leave Miss Donna alone. Go on now, get... She jolted his buttocks with her foot, lifting him slightly into the air. He hit the ground running. You got some man following you, Miss Donna. You ought to holler for backup. Well, thank you, Big Otis, and thank you for always being such a good friend. I treat people the same way they treat me, that's all. Oh, and uh, y'all have a nice lunch next door. She disappeared into her saloon. Mama, come on, I've got things to do. Viola, please do not sit on Mrs. Wong's food dogs, their decoration. Opening the door, the rush of air conditioning poured out of the restaurant. May I help you, may I help you to smoking, non-smoking? Could we sit over in the corner, Mrs. Wong, by the dragon? Oh, yes, yes, you sit by dragon. Nice to sit there. You like soup? Yes, please, two, Mrs. Wong. One mini, I get you tea. She scurried off into her kitchen. I love this place. Never a soul here. The quiet was broken by the cackles of Fran and Walida, the local mavens of scandal. The doors flung open. Donna saw their dark silhouettes against the high noon summer sun. Mrs. Wong flew once more from the kitchen. May I help you, may I help you to smoking, non-smoking. You like sit by dragon too? Smoking. So we can talk. Interesting stuff. So I'm kind of curious on stage. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we definitely hear a clear delineation of the characters. Do you do? How much do you use your physicality? Do you grab wigs? Or it's, how does there this... is there is no time for wigs. There's <laughs> no time for glasses. Uh, there's no time for any props whatsoever. So everything is done e either through mime or through a very quick character change. I bet I bet the producer loved that part of the budget. Uh, yeah, that's typically very attractive. Uh, 
people's people immediately start shying away when you say, well, about this show. And they say that, you know, they're, they're putting the negatives up right off the bat. And you say, well, all I need is a box. What? <laughs> You're in. <laughs> and there's only one person in a cast of 17. We really like that. So, yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 I probably don't know enough of the Ovoir to say this for 100% certainty, but it sure seems that a lot of these character switching plays, a la Greater mm-hmm. Tune and whatever, happen in the South. What is it about Maybe. Southern characters that's so attractive for these quick fire? Character change. Thing. Not sure. I, I I wonder that myself because I've seen other you know I've seen other plays and it, they they work okay. I think I think they work better and when they're southern for some reason uh, I don't know why other than maybe the maybe those of us who grew up around some of it or knew those people we we studied them. They were very easy to study and you know as they say in the south there's nothing to do but sit around and look pretty. So you just you 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 sit around a lot, and you you have a lot to observe. And two, you'll notice that most of these southern plays don't you know the male characters aren't featured a lot because the women are usually the more fascinating to watch, and the the men keep a lot of it under wraps. Uh, keep they play everything very close to the vest, uh, so it it can be difficult to get their personalities into something, but. In this case, yeah, I, I, think I, I think I got them all. Uh, with 17, I think I covered everybody. <laughs> There's even a June bug, so. Uh, now, what theater is this currently playing at? It's at Stage Left Studio. Um, Cheryl King's uh, created a, uh, the only solo repertory theater company in New York, um, I think is one of the ways it's built. But it's a, a really sweet space. It's uh, only 30, 35 seats, but uh, it's clean and comfortable and the bathroom there's bathrooms available for all <laughs> and i'm Other sorry more stalls and seats? i've been to new i've been <laughs> to many plays in new york where i've paid a whole lot of money and i didn't have warm water to wash my hands after waiting in line for 30 minutes on a single toilet bathroom for 60 to, to 150 people so that alone was such a was a very big plus to me that it's 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 clean and friendly and has all of the accommodations of home, uh, but it's very quaint and very very nice. And uh, once the lights go down, you're in you're in the moment. So anything well, can be a theater. And it's nice, I think, for everybody to realize that you know being in the, a small, comfortable thirty five seat theater doesn't prevent the New York Times from coming down and giving you a great review. No, it do- no, that doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, I think they're more interested in a, the the best story they can get and the best plays they can get. So yay, I'm glad they very glad they came. So. Now this is uh, playing Wednesdays through the March twenty fifth. Yes. Uh, now you mentioned that you've done this a few times before and a few mm-hmm. times things. Do you think there's any chance of this uh, coming back? Don't know. Uh, this was all sort of an experiment. That's why we were only running on Wednesdays. Uh, it's 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 difficult to schedule a space uh, in New York. Period, and to get uh, this particular space is where I wanted to. I wanted to stay there. I really liked uh, doing the doing the show there. And uh, we, you know, I I looked around at other places, but. Cheryl was very much behind the show, and it, and it seems to work very well there. And I, I like the I, I like the idea too that after the show, people can hang around afterwards and talk if they want to. And she's she's more than happy to do that. In fact, that's what her space is all about. She wanted to have that salon sort of atmosphere that after you've seen a play, you can discuss with the author or the performers afterwards and get to know the crowd. 
All right. Well, flank, Frank, <laughs> Frank. I turned into some weird character. Frank Blocker, uh, thanks so much for coming down and discussing Southern Gothic novel. And uh, I'm guessing they can find out more. Look for it to be hitting anywhere else at the website. Yes, uh, there is a website, southerngothicnovel.com. If you're interested in tickets, you want smartticks.com. But either or, you can find your way to to buying tickets and to to come to the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good luck with the rest of your run, and thanks so much for stopping by. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. The Call Board. ACT's annual Young Playwrights Festival returns March 19th through the 21st for a seventh year in Seattle and features a stunning mix of dramatic and comedic new works from extraordinarily talented student writers ages 14 to 18. Taking place in the Allen Theater, ACT will present staged readings of eight new plays developed through ACT's Young Playwrights program. This program serves upwards of 350 middle and high school students from King, Kitsap, and Pierce counties throughout 16 greater Seattle area schools. Plays are selected by an artistic panel within ACT from a pool of approximately 300 submitted works. To prepare for the staged readings, each student playwright is partnered with a professional director, dramaturg, and actors. They participate in nearly 20 hours of rehearsal with his or her creative team. Each program is performed twice during the three-day festival. For more information, make sure you check out our show notes for volume 305 at our website, www.broadwaybullet.com. All right, next up for other Regional information for our younger listeners. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is searching for six children in the Raleigh area to make their stage debut with Chitty at Memorial Auditorium when she arrives on March 31st for a nine-performance engagement throughout April 5th. Based on the timeless novel by famed James Bond author and creator Ian Fleming, the production features the music and lyrics by the legendary Sherman Brothers, composers of Mary Poppins. The national tour also features an original script and fresh adaptation directed by Ray Roderick. Close. Louis St. Louis is a songwriter, arranger, composer extraordinaire, and his newest project is, I guess, earning him the name The Bishop in Detroit, which he is enjoying. It is the first ever reworking of a living composer, I guess, let alone Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, historical Jesus Christ Superstar, which Louis St. Louis has transformed into a gospel version and uh, Lewis is here in the studio to talk about that and uh, in part two we'll talk about some of his other career things uh, which he's also been involved with the original movie of Greece writing some songs for that among numerous other things and uh, I was expecting with the name Louis St. Louis I was expecting a big black man to walk in the door and <laughs> oh dear <laughs> well <laughs> and, and he, I'll just say he's not black <laughs> <laughs> but he is talented, and he's here with us to talk about the show. And we're going to even hear some never-before-heard never demos of the gospel recording of Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Uh, soul has no color. <laughs> Let me just please define that. It has location. Usually it's uptown. <laughs> um no, in Detroit, excuse me. Uh, where it wasn't was, just the gospel reworking. It was that name, Louis St. Louis. Just well, yeah, uh, that was suggested um, some years ago by Paul Cantor, who is the man that originally discovered um, Dionne Warwick. And I had a singles deal with Scepter Records. Ooh, how's my plastic surgery looking? Or can you hear it as it's tearing? <laughs> uh, on Scepter Records, and he uh, said, you know, we can't use your real name because it, it's a high northern Italian name. And uh, at that time, there were no De Niro's, Travolta's, Pacino's, et cetera. He said, so we're going to call you St. Louis. 
And I thought, well, I think you have to earn that, such as uh, Count Basie, Duke Ellington. And a friend of mine said that evening, why don't you just call yourself Louis St. Louis? So I thought that was kind of cool. So I did. And so it has been. And so it is. <laughs> well, we're going to get into talking about your illustrious career in a, a little bit. But let's talk in the time being, because you got a yeah. show that's just going on just through this weekend. Yes, so. uh, it's in Atlanta. It is the world premiere of Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel. And what that means is it has been transferred, has been rearranged, and put in the genre of black contemporary gospel. And, and I mean of the moment. Uh, I don't know how many people know the reference, but R&B is the new gospel, and the new gospel is R&B, whichever way you want to change it up or change it around, uh, i.e. Mary Mary, one of the most popular mm -hmm. um, uh, visible uh, gospel groups, uh, two sisters, I have just won the best R&B gospel performance for Get Up from their new uh, album. And so it is a much more urban kind of thing now. So I was uh, conducting a concert for the League of New York Theaters in 2002 uh, for Jed Bernstein. And uh, it was in Chicago. And we put up two women, uh, one black woman, one white woman, in left center le and right center, uh, doing I Don't Know How to Love Him, and it was in the middle of the concert and it stopped an 80-minute concert dead in its tracks. And I thought, well, and there was sort of an unveiling and, a, and, a, and an epiphany in that moment. And I, I came home from Chicago and I thought, perhaps I could do this whole score this way. So I called my best friend and great vocal arranger, Daryl uh, Williams, and I said, you have to do this with me. And so we started, and then I eventually made this very fancy demo uh, actually, I wrote a letter to Andrew Lloyd Webber in London. I begged a favor from someone that I had known mutually for many, many years and got it directly to his house. And he, the story goes that he went in the next morning screaming and raving, uh, well, I don't know who this is. Maybe I think I do. <laughs> but uh, it seems that he's either one brilliant raving queen or... He's just a genius, and uh, certainly he knows how to take a look at the old material, maybe more than some of you up here. Now, this is, I'm just quoting what someone told me. <laughs> and so he charged uh, one of his legions to come and meet with me, and I pitched it to him. And that kind of began the journey from 2002 to get this on. And now it is at the incredible Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and for, for, for the entire personnel there, there I, would work, I would walk through fire for these people. This is an extraordinary place to do a new project. And it's uh, selling out, and, and there's a standing ovation every night uh, without any uh, conjuring of the audience, and uh, an extraordinary review in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I think a review that maybe the likes of which has not been seen in New York in a good 10 years. It is an extraordinary rave, uh, not just for me personally, but for the entire idea and for um, the uplifting feeling that people seem to have from such a tragic story. I mean, we all know the story, um, and we know it has a tragic ending, but people are leaving saying, 
that there's somehow I feel better and there seems to be some sort of redemptive feeling here. Greatest quote I ever heard about anything. A woman came up in the lobby and said, I was so afraid I was going to lose my job with the airlines and then I came here to see this tonight and I saw a thing of beauty and beauty gives me hope. Come on, people. (laughs) Beauty gives me hope. That's a song, Michael, isn't it? Yes, that is. It's absolutely a song. Yeah. Well, before we talk further about this, maybe mm-hmm. it's a good idea to let people hear a taste sure. of what they might mm-hmm. be getting into. Do you want uh, to set up this first song? Or this is actually around? the title song, Jesus Christ Superstar. And this was our take on it. And this was part of the uh, demo that uh, got me the deal. All right. Let's take okay, a Here it is. In what we call a Holy Ghost version. <laughs> So clearly quite a different take, very interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious, you, you're a very successful songwriter yourself. 
Uh, well, well you, I think some people refer to me as a one-hit wonder. I don't know. <laughs> one-hit wonder is better than no hits at all. Yeah. What, what's, what's that one-hit wonder? Don't you wonder. <laughs> what, what's that one Maybe I'm wonder? a wonder kitten. <laughs> <laughs> what's we, that one-hit wonder? I jokes. What? What's that one-hit wonder? What is it? Yeah. Sandy. Yeah, from Grease. Uh, from the so Grease movie, it's... yeah. Well, I was original musical director of Grease on Broadway. Yeah. Oh, we'll we'll to talk tend... to the, we'll just save the Grease story for later. Oh, okay, fine. Just so people know that you are a songwriter. And, yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of curious, from that perspective, as a creative songwriter, mm-hmm. what made you want to take on somebody else's work and reconceive it? I, I think it purely was the, the intuitive uh, recognizing the revealing to me. It was really very spiritual. I don't want to get corny about it, but it was. I felt as though I was being spoken to. My background is in the Pentecostal church in Detroit from the time I was five years old. So I came up in this. By the time I was 12, I was playing in church. And by the time I was 14, I was music director of my church, a pretty sizable church. And I was a choir director, and I, by the time I was 16, I began writing, and I had my own girl backups. And uh, it all comes from the, from the church anyway. In, in, this, in this world of music, in the genre of gospel music, and by the time I was 16 and 17, I was playing in interracial churches and in uh, black churches uh, that were populated by friends of mine in school. I'm now a member of an all-black Baptist church in Queens. Antioch Baptist, Corona Queens. Yeah, mm-hmm. Reverend Bentley. Woo! <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> he's coming on a Honda, but he's leaving in a Bentley. Thank you. <laughs> well, yes! <laughs> uh, songwriting. Uh, you know, I, I, I wished that I was in, inherently more of a song plugger, but I never was. If somebody asked me to write something, I was very good. I'm very good at task-oriented stuff. If you tell me what you need, I can write it for you. Give me a diagram, I can write it for you. Uh, as somebody going out trying to peddle songs, I wasn't good at it. So I'd love to maybe talk with you a little bit more privately sometime oh. <laughs> after this. Cause I, I, I very you know much feeling, identify right? with that feeling. Yes. Yeah. You've got it. It takes a lot of chutzpah, as they say in the business to go out there and get in someone's face and kind of like musically undress and say, this is how fabulous I am. Don't you think so? No. Thank you for coming. (laughs) Goodbye. Well, the hell with you. (laughs) Can we swear on this? Yes, you can. Oh, good. (laughs) Judy's over there frantically. Yes, I know she is. New media, you can. That and Jesus Christ Superstar Gospel in one breath, right? Wow. It's like somebody asking me, was this a good idea for Vegas? I said, I don't know if a cross logo is really good for Vegas. A crucifixion logo in Vegas? Nay. Nay, nay, nay. Uh, anyway, what'd you ask me? <laughs> oh, well, we got off track, but back to Jesus Christ Superstar a little bit. Um, yeah. So the show's been up and running and okay, uh, so, doing very yeah. well. Did has Weber had any further contact with you since the since uh, he originally yeah, he, he, he came down to well Tim Rice came first, who just went ape over it, and thought it was absolutely wonderful and uh, innovative and uh, brilliant, and uh, I think it, I think it should just go directly to Broadway. Why bother with the tool? Uh, I don't know. You know, we're waiting. You know, when you're in the creative seat, as I am, I mean, all my years I spent as a music director, as an arranger, as an, I was just thinking the other day, I was looking at Betty Buckley's picture for Feinstein's. I was Betty Buckley's first rehearsal pianist. 
giving my age away. But I was her audition pianist. She and Donna McKechnie were my first clients. And in those days, you used to get paid in cash, so you're walking around with a nice big load in your pocket. Um, but anyway, um, I digress. Thank you, <laughs> Bette Midler. <laughs> She'd love that, wouldn't she? Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> about Tim Rice. So moving oh, to Tim Broadway. loved it. Uh, Andrew and I met for a few minutes. Uh, I had never met Andrew throughout the entire project. Never. Just the responses, you know, filtered through uh, other people who worked up there who were very much my uh, champions through all the years of trying to get it on. Uh, uh, he liked a lot of it. He had some notes. I expected him to. I didn't expect him to love every single moment. It's a hard thing for another composer, you know, if somebody is messing around with your music. And, you know, and Andrew's a very exacting composer and, you know, and successfully so. I'm, I'm in the legion of fans. I've always been an Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. I say, I say the same thing that I said about Whitney Houston when people say, all she does is scream. I said, if you could get up in the morning, look like that and scream like that, <laughs> you would be one happy fool, you know? And, and, and people who say, oh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, poo. No, not poo. Yeah, hey, yes. Mm -hmm. If you can write like that and you can keep on writing like that for 40 years, that's not a bad thing. So, uh, you know, we will see. Um, the power is, what I was saying was, as a creator now, I, I've tended to the music not to try to be so involved in where are we going next? You know, what's your opinion today? What's your opinion tomorrow? We'll see after the run is closed on Sunday uh, what's going to be next. So there you go. All right. Well, we've got another song here yeah. from this demo. Do you, I know you said that there's a, you know, this is a really interesting arrangement of Heaven on Your Mind. Heaven on Their Minds. Heaven on Their Minds. Yeah. That's right. And uh, is there a story behind this that you want to say first before uh, we play it? Or? Well, for the aficionados, I, I arranged it three different times because I couldn't seem to strike it. Uh, the first time in, I went and I cut a track, and Daryl and I just kind of looked at each other and said, well, that's kind of stinky, isn't it? I put it away, and then I fooled around with something else. I didn't cut a track. And then I didn't show anyone what I came up with. I just went to the studio, and it's got a really interesting time change. Not a time change in it, but a feel change. Right smack in the middle of it, and the drummer said, so we're going to splice that. And I said, No. We're just going to do it straight on, and you're going to make it happen. And Frankie said, well, how am I going to do that? And I said, you're just going to do it because I'm going to smile when it happens. Mm -hmm. And then you're just going to be fabulous. And he was. It is, it's, a, it's a fabulous arrangement. Well, I think they're all fabulous. What do you know? You know, Every day, the one that you do that day is the best one that you've ever come <laughs> of up course. with. We all know that. <laughs> yeah. So that's I, I love it. And that's Daryl singing. Well, it's actually Daryl Williams singing on both of these tracks. And a choir that we made up from nine people and recorded them until they were actually 72 people. This is, these are the original demos. So there you go. All Coming right. on their minds. All right. Let's take a listen. My mind is clear now.
Right, so if people are listening to this right away, they can still rush down, fly down to Atlanta, and catch this uh, unique premiere. Uh, any information on how they would go about getting that? Getting the, the Alliance. Are they, the, are they, is it completely sold out? Can they still snag a seat? I think you probably can get a few on the sides and maybe up in the back. Actually, towards the back of the house is a really great view of this show. This... Uh, the set is by Michael Jurgen, who uh, won the Tony for South Pacific. And it is just extraordinary. It wraps right down to the front row. Yeah, he's fantastic. We interviewed, we interviewed him on this program right before he won his Tony this year. So. What a nice guy he is, too. I mean, I have to say, the Alliance is very much into their mantra, we do nice very well. And they do. They're very careful the way they pick their people. Robert Wurzel, who is the lighting designer, is absolutely brilliant. Paul Taswell on costumes. Oh, my God. Incredible. Um, as I said, the, the set wraps right to the house. You can actually reach right out and touch Darius de Haas as Jesus. You literally can. And Nicole Long, who is uh, an Atlanta... Darius de Haas was actually one of her very first interviews on this program, yeah? too, when he was doing his one-man show for What now. an amazing talent. There's a lot of connections here. In this I think segment. out of all the... I've worked with some <laughs> extraordinary people and extraordinary singers. This guy has the best vocal recovery within a performance that I have ever heard. And there's a lot of high wailing in this score for him. Uh, anyway, what I was saying was is it wraps so directly to the house. That way the house feels a part of it. So no matter where you sit, you get that feeling. Um, I'm sure you can just go to the Alliance box office, which is at Peachtree and 14th uh, in Midtown Atlanta. And I wanted to say that it also has 58 people in it. That's 10 in the band and 48 on stage. So... It's quite, quite overwhelming and quite impressive, and um, it's emotionally riveting. It really, really is. We have some of the greatest singers ever. We have a choir that was picked, handpicked from 150 applicants, uh, and so, so there's not a clinker in the group. There's no break in the chain. So uh, I'm very, very happy and very proud of what's up there. All right. Is there a website they can go to for more information? Yeah, to the AllianceTheater.com, A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E, or Alliance. Teatro de Alliance. Ooh, that makes me think of something I should tell you later. Okay. About well, a concert at the Alliance Frances <laughs> with a very famous performer who stopped me in the middle of the song to tell me that the tempo is not right. <laughs> you remember that story? Oh. Yeah. Lillian Montevecchi. I don't mind saying who it was. That's okay. We're friends. Yeah. We're in the middle of uh, at the Follies Berger, right? And in, I, I hear uh, we're about 14 bars into it, and suddenly... 17 feet downstage from behind me, I hear, Louis, I don't like this tempo very much. We stop, please. <laughs> my bass player, who shall remain nameless, says, don't move. I said, I'm not going anywhere, baby. She's coming to me. <laughs> she walks up, so she's, and her mic is on, of course. Oh, Louis, please, monsieur. I, I beg you, see, vous play we much do much faster, Yes. And I said, oh, no problem, mademoiselle. And as she walked away, I said to the drummer, now, I'm going to give you the downbeat, and then I'm going to put the baton down. You know what to do, don't you? <laughs> it was as fast as a firehouse. And in the middle of it, I hear, I love it! It's fabulous! <laughs> so it was actually a great moment in the end. You know, I was sweating bullets during it, but it was, I don't like this stuff very much, Louis. Yeah, well, I don't like you either very much, baby. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we're going to continue this interview next week. Okay. Well, we're continuing it now, but we'll air the second half of it next week okay. on the program because I, I know that there's a great story behind the whole Grease thing from what I... Oh, Grease was a phenomenal project. And here's some of your other stuff. That so, project changed a lot of people's careers. Really did. Definitely. Okay, so Louis St. Louis, we'll, our listeners will hear more from you next week. My pleasure. Hopefully they can get down and check out uh, the Jesus Christ Superstar S- gospel. gospel. Right. And uh, hopefully they'll be catching it in New York soon. Hopefully, yes. On the positive side. Hey, once again, this is Marty Cooper, and I'm on the positive side. If you have any opinions about what I had to talk about today, and I've gotten a little reaction from my last uh, little bit of a couple of weeks ago, just email me at broadwaymarty at aol.com. Uh, I got some nice notes a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I have to get back to you guys, but uh, I've been ill. I missed last week. I had the worst cold I've ever had in my entire life, so I'm still on heavy antibiotics. In any case, uh, as I have told you before, I'm still ushering. And uh, last week, I was at uh, the booth to see the story of my life. Now, for all of you people who want this out of our lives, uh, I really enjoyed it. I saw most of it. I found the two actors, Will Chase uh, and Malcolm Getz, great. Uh, They did a great job. And it's about male bonding. And uh, for those of you who are wondering, it's not about a gay relationship. It's just about male bonding from childhood on. And the one character, Malcolm's character, dies for some reason. Either he committed suicide or he jumped off a bridge or whatever. And uh, Will Chase, his friend, is uh, trying to think of a eulogy at his funeral. At that point, uh, Malcolm Getz appears, and we work through their lives. And one thing I find in theater, if I smile and have have to brush a tear away from my eye uh, at any point, it's working for me. And I did both in this show. Uh, It's sweet. This music is kind of Sondheim. There are a lot of parallels to Sondheim. At times, you think you're watching Sunday in the Park with George. I did find this engaging, and if, if you have a chance, hopefully before it closes, it's not doing well. Uh, hopefully, it'll come out to good reviews. I'm keeping my fingers crossed, and people will want to go see it after they read the reviews. I'm reading all that chat, and we're getting some positive reactions there also. So, um, whatever. Uh, also, I'd like to talk about someone that just passed on, uh, uh, a conductor named John McGlynn. Uh, he passed away this week at the age of 55. It doesn't list what he passed on from, but uh, he's put out a bunch of recordings that are really great. Uh, some of them are not available. Uh, some of them are. Uh, he was, his idea was the inspiration for the last production of Showboat. Uh, He put out a semi-operatic three-CD set uh, back in 1990 and uh, was wonderful. It had every bit of music Mr. Kern ever wrote for the show. And uh, the outtakes, the alternate versions, whatever, songs that were never used. And it is just a scrumptious collection. So if you have a chance, uh, uh, go to a record store if you find one. Uh, and purchase a copy of Showboat. It's a three-CD set. One really wonderful recording he did uh, a number of years ago 
is called Broadway Showstoppers, which is not available. Uh, it has p six people, six people as Re Rebecca Luca, Brent Barrett, Chris Gronendahl. Uh, it has all the popular Broadway people of the early 90s. And uh, they do some songs that have, haven't been heard in a long time. There's one Jerome Kern song from a show called Sweet Adeline, a uh, show which boasts the song Why Was I Born? Uh, it's called Some Girl Is On Your Mind. And uh, this is a big thing to a lot of people. If you hear this, it is just sublime. There's a great version of the song All The Things You Are with the original orchestrations from way back when. Uh, from a show called Very Warm for May. You might want to look into some of his recordings. There's a fantastic Anything Goes available with the original 1927 orchestrations and songs. Uh, for those of you that thought Friendship, uh, the Cole Porter song Friendship was from, uh, was from Anything Goes, it's not. It was from a, uh, another show called Dubarry Was a Lady. Um, and uh, it was just kind of interpolated into Anything Goes. Uh, so it does not appear on this recording, but some really great things do, especially the overture. I mean, it just takes you back. Also available online uh, on iTunes is a Busby Berkeley album that he did with all stereo modern versions with original orchestrations from the great Warren Dubin shows, some of which were used in the Broadway show 42nd Street, and it appears on the Busby Berkeley album by John McGlynn. So you might want to look into some of his recordings that are available, and hopefully EMI will release the entire catalog so we can have it all back. I just wanted to say a little something about that. Uh, I hope you appreciated his work. Uh, sad to see him go. Uh, I actually met him a few times. And uh, oh, one more note I want to say about Mr. Kern. Uh, I worked and I saw uh, music in the air a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I saw things in it that some people didn't. Uh, it wasn't the most popular show they've done, uh, but I found the orchestrations, the talent that was in the show, wonderful. Uh, so, and I hope, I was speaking to Kurt Dirch at the last performance, and he says uh, he's thinking of recording it, and I certainly hope he does, because uh, some of the music are just gems that you want to hear. Uh, I was talking about Mr. McGlynn. It will probably remind you of some of his recordings. In any case, uh, this is Marty Cooper once again saying, stay on the positive side. On the Boards. Bobby Fennaro is a New York-based actor who jumps back and forth frequently between television and theater. Uh, many of you may know him from his uh, four-year stint on The Sopranos, and his current project is Fresh Kills, which is a new play at 59 East 59th Street Theaters. And Bobby is here in the studio to talk a little bit about the new show and maybe a little bit about his career in general. How you doing? All right, Michael. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so really quick for, for those listeners, like I'm, I'm probably one of two people in America who has never seen an episode of The Sopranos. <laughs> don't, don't have HBO and I can't get my girlfriend to watch it. And you don't have cable? It's a long commitment. It's a long commitment. I can't get my girlfriend to watch it. So, uh -huh. so to, just really quick, uh, what character did you play on The Sopranos? And Eugene Pontecorvo. And he was um, one of the um, members of the, uh, of, there was a, also, a, there was always a dark crew 
a crew that uh, kind of uh, got on Tony Tony's nerves. Uh, it was um, David Preval was in it. He you know he um, and also um, Joe Pantaleone. And I came on the show when Joe Pantaleone came on the show, and we were that part of that crew. All right, and now your new play is well that you're in is Fresh Kills, yeah. and uh, this is about blood, a lot of internet duplicity and. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. It's you know it, it's you know you know walking on the way over here. I was I was watching. Um, I, I just stopped smoking, and, uh, and, a, and a couple they had these skinny skinny cigarettes. You know, <laughs> less nicotine. <laughs> and I was thinking about you know fresh kills, and it, it certainly is a uh, American spirit. <laughs> you know, full tobacco cigarette, and that's the kind of play it is. It comes right at you. Um, um, it's you know about Staten Island and and it really it reads like a screenplay. It's like a melodrama, a drama, Patty Chayefsky kind of a thing. Uh, it, when I first read it, it reminded me of the Kaiser Aluminum Alley, you know, or Philco Playhouse, because it could be like a three camera shoot. It really works in scenes, so it's not as poetic, but it, it does have that kind of feel to it. Um, that kind of. A uh, person caught in, in a situation and wanting to get out. All the people in situations wanting love. Um, the young man um, who wants, you know, more than just a, you know, I act out on the internet and it's a whole <laughs> mishmash of things, you know. <laughs> so it's like you're looking for a relationship outside of your marriage with a young guy, or not a relationship, I should say. You're looking for. Right, yeah, like the marriage is, you know, I mean, I've been married a few times, and I have been there. You know? Are you a method actor? Because I know it's very much you yeah. talk, you, you definitely, even in an interview, you're talking, I, you know, when you talk about the character. Just oh, so yeah. our audience understands that you're not divulging, you know, your your personal history right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's part of, you know, being an actor, you know what I mean? You know, you, get out, you expose yourself, you know, you get naked, you know, you find that side of yourself. When I read the play, I mean, it, it was very um, personal. Um, you know, I, I've been through a situation. I don't think there's anybody, there's a lot of people who, who. I mean, I've even watched interviews with Rod Steiger talking about pornography and how he, like, is, um, you know, has, you know, looked at it and, 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 and been involved with it in, in a sense that, you know, it's, it's in our lives. And I don't think anyone really... I mean, that's why I like the play, because it took on that issue. Um, but more importantly, it, it, the acting out of it. And, and, and nowadays, you have like Elliot Spitzer, you have uh, even Vito Fasala, as I was telling you before, from Staten Island, who, has a, who had a kid out of wedlock and stuff like that. All these things are being exposed, all these different lives that people live, um, these duplicit kind of lives. And for all the characters in Fresh Kills, they all want something else. Me, who wa wants, you know, more than just that relationship with my wife. I'm not getting any sex, and I act out on that, and uh, with a young man uh, who was a teenager, and this young man, you know, he comes from a very affluent family, but he was never given any love, and he wants something more than just the sex, the carnal thing, which I want. He wants to kind of have a father figure, and uh, he kind of adopts me and becomes this fatal attraction in my life. And my wife, who wants to be part of a woman's league, she's looking out also to, um, you know, to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to fulfill herself. Um, so all the people want something, but it's all shattered uh, because in the end, it, it, it all comes in, into the light. And, um, you know, I don't want to give the end a little play away, but uh, um, it's a very truthful play. It really mirrors what's going on right now, and that's why I liked it. It's very topical. So now in your television career, you, uh, 
a lot of the people that are in The Sopranos and those type of actors, and I'm just kind of curious in this angle, a lot of those actors seem to play gangsters a lot in a lot of films. I, the, the same group of actors yeah, you know, yeah. does a lot of the mob scenes. Right. Do you, is that something you've fallen into as well, an actor? You know, I, I tell you the truth, I just take it from, you know, I take it from like... Um, because this play obviously is not that, you know, right? But, I, but I'm just wondering. In television, of course, they love to typecast people. And it's, it's 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 a very hard, you know, thing to get over. You know, the only thing you can, you know you, you look at is you look at men like, uh, well, you know, like Humphrey Bogart and, and James Cagney, who started basically doing gangsters and stuff like that, um, and, and even Robert De Niro who started with Mean Streets and Scorsese, and then he moved on to Taxi Driver and all those other great films that he did, Bang the Drum Slowly and everything. You look to you look for an opening, and um, you know, a lot of times this is how a lot of people start, and, you know, it's very hard. You get typecast. I try to um, find stuff and to work with, like Working Man Clothes, this company that uh, I've worked with uh, for some time at Readings and some other place. You look for material that's really going to say something about yourself because a lot of times your agent's going to send you to f- for that typical thing, that money-making job, uh, but that's not so fulfilling, you know, and uh, you, time and chance has a lot to do with acting. I, you know, I could walk out of here today, I can meet my Marty Scorsese, or, and you, would, you try to develop those relationships and have people come and see you, and, and and if you get lucky enough and, and everything falls in the right place, you have a writer who really likes you and he wants to put you in his film, and, the, and it all begins there. But it is very tough what you're talking about, getting out of that, you know, that mold. And, and a lot of it has to do with you trying to make opportunities, making these things, you know, getting your own company together, start doing your own things, putting yourself into things. I mean, even Charles Bush, whom I went to a seminar, and, you know, he was talking. He's talking about when his agent calls and how, like, he's uptight about, like, going out for a role because he likes doing his own stuff, you know, and that's what it's all about, you know, I mean, for myself also. So how long have you been with the development process of Fresh Kills? Or well, I, I, wasn't at, I, wasn't at it from the, I wasn't at it from the beginning, um, but Amanda Hamilton and Isaac Byrne, the director, Amanda the, being the producer, she's the producer, executive producer. She asked me to do it, and Isaac Byrne, the director, he also asked me to do it. Um, I read it, and it was like a, about a year and a half, and this is a company that, that works on a shoestring budget, you know. I mean, I just finished a play uh, about last year. It was produced for $120,000, and I hate to say it, but these, these people, they put a play up at 59 East 59th Street. Had they did it, I don't know, with like a $13,000 budget. It's amazing. And everyone in the company just works. And that's why they really deserve a chance for people to come out and see this show because um, it's really, you know, they're a great bunch of people. From A lot of them are from Texas. Um, a lot of talented people have come to New York from Texas. I know when I first started, I, uh, I, I joined the Lion Theater, the company on 42nd Street. Uh, Garland Wright, who did Vanities, he came to where I was uh, going to school at the time, Pace. I went for a year there of drama, and then I quit. And um, But anyway, he invited me there to be an apprentice, and they were a great, talented group. And the Working Man Closes that has that same thing. They're a very good, talented group who do edgy stuff, topical stuff. They just did a play about Cold Penetrator, about uh, a rock, a man coming, a soldier coming back and trying to get back, work his way back into society. So, you know, they choose things that are really... Happening, you know, Mike. Yeah, no. Fresh Kills is uh, taking place through March first. Yeah. Do you already have your next job lined up, or do you have a future? Anything lined well, up for the future? Know, well, um, 
there is there are some things that I like to do. I mean, I'm working currently working on a TV show called Unusuals, um, and it's with Adam Goldberg, uh, Amber Tamberlin, and a few other names. Uh, um, I've done like four episodes of that, so that's you know that's hopefully it'll it'll go a little bit further for me. We'll see what happens. It's going to be on ABC after Lost. Um, I went in for all those actors. They say you know don't go in if you know you don't have. I only had a couple of lines, and um, I went in as a beat cop, and 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 then they gave me a name, and now they've given me a few scenes, so they seem to like me. So always go to all those auditions, no matter what, because you never know. I mean that's a lot. A lot of people got started on Sopranos. They had one line and everything. So um, you never you never know. So it's important to go to everything and 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 put yourself out there and, and humble yourself. I mean, my last episode of Sopranos, it won an Emmy Award for Best Writing. I was the lead on it. And um, I thought after that, boy, everything's going to open up. It's going to be like what Harrison Ford, Star Wars, you know what I mean? Like after Star Wars, he said, ah, I get all the scripts now and, and everything. But it, it did, that didn't happen for me. Um, I'm still out there, you know, plugging away, doing fresh kills. And, and, and it's great because it's the climb that's the really... You know, the climb, man, that's everything. You know, getting there, of course, I want to be there and and, and 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 transcend, you know, to me, acting's about that human thing. Um, and it's unselfish, you know, but the climb is really the great thing, you know. All right, well, Bobby Fanaro, thanks so much for coming down and Thank talking you too, about my show. Fresh Kills at 59 East 59th Street Theaters through March 1st. Uh, they can find more information and links on how to get to the show at our show notes for Volume 305 here. Thanks for coming down. Best of Thank luck you. with all your projects. Thank you. Thank you, Broadway Bullet. <laughs> Joe Sherman showed up at our last open mic event on February 8th and performed an original song of his that we're going to play here. The song is called Cold Day in Hell. Uh, he also won some free studio time at the event. So, uh, yeah, he's working as a cashier at Target in Brooklyn right now, but hopefully maybe those days won't be uh, too long for him. And remember, our next open mic starts, we're going weekly, starting March 1st, so if you're a composer, come on down and play. You can bring a singer, you can use our accompanist, play yourself, bring a guitar, whatever. If you're a singer, come down and show off your talents. Maybe you'll meet up with some fresh new composer coming up. It'll be a lot of fun, March 1st. More information is on our website, but right now, here's Joe Sherman with Cold Day in Hell live on February 8th. Joe, what do you think? I'm doing a number that I wrote uh, called Cold Day in Hell. Delightful. So here's Joe doing Cold Day in Hell. Thank you. Pardon my language. And any uh, satires, all in good fun, I assure you. There you go again, calmly walking away, as if you really had nothing to say. No respect, no acknowledgement of my all-too-obvious sentiments. Looks like I'll be here a while. So I'd better hide myself behind a smile. Anywho, I believe it's fate you could too. But how long must I wait? It'll be a cold. 
cease to stare, it'll be a cold day in hell, the day that you start to care, I guess I'm a fool to wait for you to appreciate the product I am trying to sell. All right, we'll probably be playing something else from the last open mic in next episode. And don't miss, get down to our open mic on March 1st. Uh, meet a lot of great people, have a lot of fun. Uh, it's a $5 cover, but uh, what the club is doing for the first several times is when you pay your cover, you're going to get a $5 drink ticket. So, hey, it's essentially kind of free. It's a two-item minimum, um, but food counts, and uh, they got a lot of great virgin drinks for people who are under 21. It's 16 and over to attend, and... Hope you all can make it down. It's going to be a lot of fun, and you might get heard here on Broadway Bullet as well. Once again, that was open mic participant Joe Sherman with his original song, Cold Day in Hell. On the boards. Sam Shepard has always been noted for having one of the most distinctive and unique voices in our modern theater canon. But I have to say, as of late, it seems like the, the amount of his productions have dropped a little bit in New York City. But we're about to see a brand new production of Fool for Love, produced by the brand new company, The Bull. And we have Catherine Krause, who's the director and producer of Fool for Love. And she's here in the studio to chat with us. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you doing? Good. So Good. do you prefer Cat or Catherine? You know, uh, most people call me Cat. Okay. So we, I'll call you Cat from now on. We got, we got your full official name out. There you go. <laughs> well, first things first, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about Fool for Love for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, all of Sam Shepard's output. Fool for Love uh, is a play that was written in the early 80s. And it's about two hard-drinking, hard-fighting lovers who uh, find themselves in a motel room at the edge of the desert. Uh, um, basically, 
uh, Eddie, the main character, is a rodeo star stuntman who's trying to get back his love, May, who's ran away from him and holed up in a hotel room. And uh, basically, it's a short, intense play about these two lovers uh, trying to see if they can make it or not. Now, a lot of Sam Shepard's work has kind of been traditionally approached very realistic and very kind of Americana rootsy as his approach, and I understand that you're taking a different approach with this. Well, we are. We're going for a more stylistic approach. Uh, You know, we're looking at how, I mean, there's so many different layers in Shepard's work. Uh, You could really bring out any layer at any time, Um, but I think to make the play land with as much resonance as possible. It needs to be played with humor. Um, You know, the actors need to know the kind of world that they're in, which is a surrealistic, stylized world. And uh, that's what our presentation is about. You know, in the various productions I've seen of Sham Shepard's work, you know, over the years, it it does surprise me how much people miss the humor in his work. Yeah, and it's not, you know what? Even in his darkest plays, he's got quite a lot of humor going on. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what makes him, you know, so, um, that's what makes him so incredible, in my opinion. And I do think that, that people tend to go for the dark, um, maybe because, you know, uh, realistic acting has become something that's a, a kind of a, defines the American style of acting. So you have an American playwright, and you know you kind of pair those two things together, and it seems to make sense to people. Um, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that the best way that you can get all the possible layers out of his work would be to enjoy the ride and have a few laughs. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's basically the deal. So, Kat, what what uh, drew you to this particular play and and the comp and the bull as a production company? Well, um, the play itself is it, it's just completely one of those like iconic plays that you know most actors want to perform, a lot of directors want to do, um, and again, there's something very pulpy about it. I understand that uh, the whole team involved with this is more or less from one acting studio, is that...? Yeah, uh, most of the actors, uh, three out of four in the cast and myself, uh, work at an acting studio called K. Michael Patton Studio. Um, So all of the actors study with her, and it just kind of ended up that way, that those are the people that gravitated towards the project. So is the studio tied in with the bull, or is it just kind of coincidence that it ended it's up It's complete so coincidence. <laughs> Maybe like-minded people, I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking on, like, acting studios, in your experience as a director and different actors you've worked with, how much can some of these acting studios affect, you know, the style and the output of the actors? Oh, I think they affect it greatly. Um, you know, you look at... Uh, Actors that spend a lot of time at the same studio have they have the um, they have the same type of language to go about processing the work. They usually have the same kind of process, rehearsal process, um, in getting a scene or a play up off its feet. And you know you find they have a shorthand with each other. Um, I think that's why very often you see people from studios continue to work with each other over time. Uh, because like-minded people tend to agree, and uh, they find that it's easier when you have that kind of a, a rapport creatively. 
So uh, what has been some other work that you, have you directed, is this your first time directing in New York? or is this, No, you know, this, so is, what's, this what's, is not my first time yeah, directing in New think. York, no. So what, 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 what types of projects are you drawn to in general? What have been some of your favorite projects in the past? Oh, you know, I'm drawn to pretty much anything that has a do-it-yourself uh, attitude with it. Um, I'm drawn to things where, uh, projects where people are uh, <laughs> basically, uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm trying to think of like one um, underlining factor, and that would be it, the people who are involved. Uh, one of my favorite projects this year um, was directing this play called, uh, well, it's a Tom Stopper play, The Real Thing. And we directed it and mounted it inside the apartment of um, the lead character, and it was incredible. Because here you have this... Um, you know, this story that's uh, based, it's kind of like, you know, vignette-ish. So it's based on, you know, little scenes inside apartments of different couples. But it was all the same apartment, and the audience was sitting in the apartment, you know. So I liked that. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, the unusual is, is what I'm attracted to, the unusual. Um, and really, you know, looking at relationships and how they can and cannot work, I suppose. That's one thing about doing the the shepherd piece that uh, that really really drew me to it, it is looking at why it is that um, relationships, love relationships, can oftentimes uh, be opposed to what society thinks is right, or why is it that we find that our human behavior is uh, sometimes completely at odds with with what's the convention? Why is our experience of love different than? Uh, than what society tells us it should be. <laughs> now, this is the Bull's first production, correct? Yes. So is there a mission statement behind the Bull, or do they have certain... Uh, yes. Uh, the main thing that the Bull would like to see happen uh, would be plays produced below Houston Street in the downtown theater scene. Um, I guess you would call it alternative theater, indie theater, uh, you know, we're interested in in the people that live down there. We're interested in the people that hang out down there. We're interested in why um, people tend to go see music or art shows, fashion shows more often than they do theater. It, it seems almost coincidental if they go see theater. It's, you know, somebody they know is in the show or what have you. We're interested in, in those people and what's going to uh, spark their love for theater. We're interested in offering a different kind of theater uh, with fun attached to it. <laughs> and, you know, it may sound glib, but I don't think so. I think that's really uh, something that should be celebrated. And uh, you, you said, what's the second show in the works for The Bull? Uh, it's called A Night at the Magician, and that will go up at the Soho Rep next fall. It's written by Katie Bender. Um, she's a performer in Fool for Love as well. And uh, it's a show about A Night at the Magician, which is a bar on the Lower East Side um, on Remington Street. And that's all I can tell you about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so now Fool for Love is taking place at what theater? I don't know if we brought... The Living Theater. The Living Theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The Living Theater. Uh, Quite a history there. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 to say the least. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Living Theater is incredible. Um, they've been around for a long, long time. They've been through it. And uh, 
You know, one thing that I think has helped them sustain uh, their um, long-term run here in the city is, you know, they always reach out to their constituents, to the populace around them. They reach out to the neighborhood around them. And uh, I think that's why they still go strong. They're really a theater about the people, for the people. Um, And when I originally met them, I ended up kind of just like walking into the theater um, because I saw it and I was, you know, I was hunting around for a theater to put up the play and um, ended up walking in there and just kind of like sitting down talking to them, looking around thinking, oh, this is perfect. And, you know, once they heard that I wanted to do Fool for Love, they got interested. And um, so... I, you know, shot some of my ideas to them, and uh, they decided to co-present it with me. All right. So uh, it's nice to see a fresh new take on Sam Shepard. It's, uh, you know, I think it's about time for people to start looking at approaching his works in a new way and not always the exact same kind of mm-hmm. I mean, he angle. does have an aesthetic with it, but <laughs> I, think, I think we'd like to turn that aesthetic on its ear just a little bit. Right, and the show is playing from March 4th through March 22nd. That's correct. And uh, the main website that people can go to for more info is thebullnyc.com. You can go there, or if you'd like to purchase tickets, the easier way is to go to thelivingtheater.org. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Kat Krause, director and producer for Fool for Love, thank you so much for coming down and chatting thank about you so the production. Much as well. And best of luck uh, with the show and The Bull getting its first production off the ground here. Great. <laughs> Top of the trades. Next to normal, the acclaimed new musical scene off-Broadway at Second Stage, and more recently at Arlington's Arena Stage, will arrive on Broadway March 27th at the Long Acre Theatre, most recently the home of Tony-winning revival of Boeing Boeing. Opening night is April 15th. Michael Grief, who directed both the off-Broadway and Arena Stage productions, will direct on Broadway as well. The Broadway production will also boast the entire Arena Stage cast, Alice Ripley, J. Robert Spencer, Aaron DeVette, D- Jennifer Damiano, Adam chandler Beret, and Louis Hobbs. The producers will close the balcony of the Long Acre to create a more intimate feel. Instead of seating 1,100, the theater's capacity will now be 820. That, my guess, is also means that people aren't stuck watching just the top of the heads of the actors. Uh, producer David Stone told the New York Times, quote, We wanted an 800-seat theater, but none were available, and this is a very emotional play, and I'm a big believer in creating the theater space you need, end quote. Disney theatrical productions will welcome Tony Award winner Faith Prince to the Broadway company of The Little Mermaid beginning Tuesday, April 7th, 2009. Prince will star as Ursula, the evil sea witch. Thomas Schumacher, president and producer of the Disney theatrical production, said, quote, We are beyond thrilled that Faith Prince is joining the cast of The Little Mermaid. She is that glorious creature, a leading lady in the great Broadway tradition, and we think a perfect match for the role of Ursula, one of Disney's most uproarious villains. Villains? <laughs> no, villains. <laughs> Continuing with the quote, we can't wait to see what happens when she dons Ursula's trademark wig and tentacles. End quote. Initial casting has been announced for the Paper Mill Playhouse's upcoming production of the Tony-winning musical 1776, which will begin performances at the New Jersey venue April 15th. According to a spokesperson for the famed regional theater, the cast will include James Barber as Edward Rutledge, Robert Cuccioli as John Dickinson, John Shuck as Benjamin Franklin, and Kevin Early as Thomas Jefferson. Additional casting will be announced shortly. Gordon Greenberg will direct. 1776, according to the paper mill, follows John Adams of Massachusetts, Ben Franklin of Pennsylvania, and Richard Henry Lee and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia as they attempt to convince the members of the Second Continental Congress to vote for independence from the shackles of the British monarchy by signing the Declaration of Independence. Uh, No offense meant to our British listeners. Performances will continue through May 17th. Curtain Call. 
All right, I want to make a quick brief apology. One Canadian listener was very offended at the way I treated Canadians in the Frigid Festival's interview talking about the CAF system. And I will say, I admire the Canadians. I love the fact that they treat their artists so well. Hopefully, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that I'm rarely serious about anything. The truth is, I like to have a little fun with the interviews, whether I uh, agree with it or not, uh, much like Stephen Colbert. And I think putting a little bit of a controversy and, you know, argumentativeness in an interview can help you remember. I'm sure many more people now know what the CAF selection system for festivals is because of the way I treated it. But I do admire the Canadians and their artistic systems, so no slight against you intended. All right, well, that wraps up this episode. Hopefully we'll see you at our open mic on March 1st. Check out our website. If you want more information on anything you heard about at the show, just check our show notes for Volume 305BB. And, uh, I'll be back next week with a lot more great stuff, including the second half of that interview with Louis St. Louis. So once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thank you for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.